Welcome to this episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. I'm the author, Pastor Michael Zarling. I'm here with the editor, Pastor Peter Hagen. And Peter and I evolved. We're going to get a little bit further in the book than we did at the last episode where we went through a whole page and a half. But we were talking about other important things, too. Yeah, yeah. Trying to stay relevant here. Yeah. So... Uh, what we're going to be talking about with this one, we're on uh, the fifth chapter on resistance, and we're on the bottom of page 73 and following, and we're going to be looking today at biblical examples of resistance. So we're going to look at each of these. I just laid them out very, very briefly for most of them, and then uh, that Peter and I are going to discuss the resistance more in depth. So the first one I mentioned are the Hebrew midwives. So they had been told by the Pharaoh, and it doesn't say in scripture for how many generations they were told to do this, that they were to kill the the newborn sons of the Israelites to keep the population down. Because at this time, I think estimates from biblical scholars that uh, the Israelites were about 2 million people living in the uh, north of Egypt in the land of Goshen. And so there are, the pharaohs are afraid that the uh, the Israelites, even though they don't have any weapons and an army and so forth, just by overwhelming force of their numbers, that they'll be able to uh, defeat the Egyptians if they ever decided to rise up. And so God had, or the pharaoh, you know, the chief of their gods for the Egyptians tells the uh, Israelite midwives to kill any newborn uh, son born to the Israelites. So, but the Hebrew midwives they say, well, these he these Hebrew women they're too strong. They're already having their children by the time we get there. So, Peter, how is that resistance? It's an interesting case um, because they were commanded to do something um, that was probably may have been part of, you know, regular medical practice. Um, (laughs) We'll get to that a little bit later, I suppose. Um, But they were commanded to do something and they obviously said, well, I'm not going to kill a child. Um, And then when they told Pharaoh this, they came up with an excuse. They said, you know, they said, well, um, these women give birth too quickly for us to be able to arrive in time. And the resistance there is just that they have been commanded to do otherwise. And they're just simply saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, this one is, you know, it's interesting that most of these are in direct, direct contrast to the, um, the moral command of God. Um, where they have a command, where they're being commanded to do something that is directly in opposition to what um, what Scripture has to say. Right, and we know that God approved of the midwives disobeying the direct order from the Pharaoh because it says in Exodus, who Moses writes, he's 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 one of those sons that spared because of the Hebrew midwives and his mom and so forth. And then he writes that God blessed these midwives with children of their own. And then we also are told in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 23, in the uh, Hall of Faith, it says they were not afraid of the king's order. So they were commended. Uh, 
the next one I have is Jehu, who took up arms against wicked King Ahab and his house. Now, that's maybe one I would not have listed on my own, but in reading the Magdeburg Confession, this is one that the pastors who wrote that confession uh, had, uh, had pointed out. They write, and though he did this by a special calling of God and also did certain unique things, nonetheless, God wanted to illustrate by this example the general calling of pious magistrates by which they ought to resist their superiors who persecute the true worship and the true church. So what they're getting at there is we had spent time <clears throat> two episodes ago and looking at the Magdeburg Confession and seeing when the governing officials become that fourth level of tyrant. And Jehu, as one of the judges, see, sees King Ahab as one as going to that fourth level of tyrant. Anything you want to add to that, Peter? Yeah, um, it, it is interesting that he takes up arms, you know, as part of God's judgment against him. That even though he has been commanded the same as you or I to submit to the governing authorities, at the same time God has said that he worked through Jehu, uh, Jehu, in order to bring judgment on the house of Ahab, um, and that he does that, and then the people in the Magdeburg Confession, um, at the time of the writing of the Magdeburg Confession, um, they say, hey, here's here's a good example of when things got too far, when the church was being persecuted too much, that God worked through this man in order to bring justice to his, uh, to his kingdom. Then the next one is Asa. And I'll be honest, I would not have picked Asa. Uh, but again, the pastors at Magdeburg did. Uh, Asa removed his mother from office and abolished her idols. And they wrote that the pastors of the Magdeburg Confession noted that this comparison saying that it brings no small degree of light and weight to this debate. I, I don't have anything else to add about Asa, do you? Nope. <laughs> uh, but the next one is very interesting. When you read the book of Esther, uh, how much uh, there is of resistance from Mordecai. So uh, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Uh and Haman had been placed over the, the Jews and so forth. And uh, Haman wanted the, the, the people in the palace to, to take a knee. And Mordecai, for whatever reason, said he would not do that. And then later on, Queen Esther initially told her cousin Mordecai that she could not go see her husband, the king, because then she would die. And then Mordecai points out and says, well, if you don't go, uh, if you do go, you may die. If you don't go, all the Jews in King Xerxes' kingdom die. So it's either you or all of us. And eventually you'll die too. So in chapter 4, she does go. She changed her mind. She said to Mordecai, I will go to the king, contrary to the law. <laughs> and then if I perish, I perish. So she is defying the Persian law and going and seeing the king unannounced. Yeah, and the interesting thing there is um, that if you had, had, act, had asked Mordecai ahead of time, um, before all of this had begun to transpire, you know, living in a foreign land, and, um, and, and just had asked him, 
what does it mean to submit? What does it mean to obey? What does it mean to resist? It would have been pretty straightforward. Um, but then when all of a sudden he sees this um, extermination order, this pogrom um, being carried out, or at least scheduled what, what to carry out. What was that word he used? Pogrom. It's a What's persecution that? of the Jews. P-O-G-R-O-M, I think. I had never um, heard that word before. Pop. It's a yeah, it's a it's a persecution of the Jews, usually usually with um, killing them and driving them out of their territory. Um, it's an historical word that oh, that might be so that would be a good word for people right now in October, November of 2023 to know. Yeah, with the that, war, that would with be everything going on with Hamas and Israel pogrom. Okay. Because we're we're not just talking anti-Semitism there, which is um, in 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 some understandings and interpretations of the First Amendment, actually most of them, anti-Semitism in and of itself is is protected free speech. Um, although, you know, anti-anti-Semitism is also protected free speech, and then that hopefully opens up the debate for a public debate about, you know, what is the proper way to talk about people. Uh, the general cultural consensus, um, rightly so, is that anti-Semitism is wrong as it is to single out any other person. Uh, for you know, race or ethnicity, something like that. But uh, pogrom is a an intense persecution directly at the Jews, um, and so when the practical application comes, and Mordecai is like, wait a minute, um, all of a sudden I have to think about this in a new way, and it's on me to make a decision now, um, and I have the ability to to make to make this right. That is right in line with what um, what Luther says in the fifth commandment that we ought to preserve and protect um, our neighbor in his body, help and befriend him in every bodily need, and that if we have the means to help somebody and we neglect to do so, then we have, in effect, brought about his or her death. And, and so that really is this, this point of resistance, where he is resisting for a specific purpose, the higher purpose of love of neighbor um, above the submission to the government, even when... Um, Filling that higher law of love of neighbor might bring, you know, personal, um, personal, you know, strife to Esther's life because she has to stand up and she might die for it. But it's the practical occurrence, uh, the practical need that prompted him to say, this is what we should do now. And then after, you know, a chapter um, or so of him talking with Esther, then Esther is finally like, yeah, I get it now. Um, I've thought this through. I've had enough time to digest what you're saying and that I'm not going to be exempt from this and that I need to stand up now um, so that we at least have some opportunity in this. Yeah, and two things come to mind when you were talking about that is, I've said this when I presented on the book too, that I think Mordecai and Esther, if it would have been just uh, Xerxes and Haman coming after them, they might have taken it and, and then turned the other cheek and then received it. But, as you're saying, when it's affecting all of the Jewish people, then they have to stand up and keep the fifth commandment. That's when we are turned into protectors. Uh, then you don't turn the other cheek or you don't expect those in your Jewish family, your own family, to they have to turn the other cheek. Uh, and something else you were you were getting at there is you love your neighbor. And I think what happened with COVID and everything having to go with that, we were being told submit to the governing authority, and that became the greatest commandment mm -hmm. after love God, and then submit to the governing authorities. 
That's not what Jesus says. He says, love God and love your neighbor. These are the greatest commandments. And we, we're we not pitting love for your neighbor against submitting to the government. But I would say that love for your neighbor is above governing authorities. Yeah, these are these are the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. You know, what the, the discussion they have just before the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and, and I think the, the linchpin for me, um, this will be the reference for this episode, is that God instituted the family before the government. <laughs> yeah, you didn't and bring that, it up at, at all the last episode. I know, I know. I was on a good streak there. Um, but that, that reality means that we also have an order to, an order of priority when it comes to loving our neighbor, who is our neighbor, um, that my spouse is my neighbor. Um, and that I am a neighbor to her in a way that nobody else is, that I've been entrusted with particular care for her. Um, our children, the children that we have together are our neighbors, and that the parents are entrusted with the care of that neighbor over and above anyone else's um, responsibility or authority over that neighbor. And it goes out from there, um, that if we think if we fall into the idea that government is instituted by God and therefore um, therefore, because government is this divinely instituted thing that it exists of itself and, um, and apart from the fourth commandment that applies first of all to our families, then we just think, hey, um, we've got my family, we've got the government, they're two separate things and I need to serve God in both. No, there's an order here. Um, and when we get that mixed up, then we then we'll find ourselves loving all the all the other neighbors without first loving those who are specifically ours. And then the next one is from Daniel chapter three: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. They stand up to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and refuse to bow down and worship the ninety-foot statue. And there they are standing out by standing up. Uh, we are recording this on November 1st, All Saints Day. So last Sunday, we celebrated the Lutheran Reformation at our churches. Peter, what did you end up preaching on? Did you preach on the Daniel text? Um, I, I preached on two, at a morning service and an evening service. Um, so the morning service, I preached on Isaiah 55 with, um, I give it the longest title ever uh, for a sermon in our podcast, the RWJ Daily. Um, something about, you know, the quantity and quality of God's law highlights the beauty of the gospel, or the beauty of the Reformation gospel. The evening one that's, I preached that's on... That's longer than most of my sermons. <laughs> that is. <laughs> I, I said it very, very slowly, so it took a good 16 minutes to read that theme. Yeah. Um, but then the evening service I preached on Daniel and the Lion's Den uh, from Daniel chapter 6. Um, and referred to this, you know, what you had referred to in your sermon as Rack Shack and Benny, um, they're, they're standing up and, and the defiance that they have, um, says that we cannot be compelled to worship you. You can throw us in the fiery furnace. We know that our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, uh, we're not going to worship you. And, and there you see them verbalizing what is the order that God, that they are worshiping that they serve the king because he is instituted by God, but they serve God above the king. Um, and for Daniel in the lion's den, you know, after 
Daniel's probably been in the government for 60 years. He's gone through like three regime changes and, um, and Darius the Mede, AKA Cyrus the Great is like, well, I'm just gonna throw you in here. And, um, and I, I would imagine Daniel saying the exact same thing when he's like 77, pushing 80 years old. Um, that even, you know, I know that my God is able to protect me, but even if he doesn't, I will continue to serve him. Yeah, and there, I think of with Daniel, you know, he's told you not to pray to anyone except King Darius for the next 30 days. And yet Daniel very well could have just gone in a back room and prayed. Yeah. Closed the doors, closed the shades on his windows and prayed and he would have been fine. But mm -hmm. I always think of it, especially in these terms, he's kind of thumbing his nose at these guys. He knows they're watching their, you know, their government surveillance, like we would think of with the FBI and CAA. They're watching him. The NSA and, was spoofing his phone. Yeah, and, and he doesn't care. I think he's calling their bluff, knowing mm -hmm. it's not really a bluff. But uh, he he says, I have to, I'd rather defy the government you know, my king, then the God who instilled the government, the king of kings, and God will bless me for doing that. Yeah, and that he's he's really forcing the king onto a, a moral moral cross. Am I going to uphold my law that is an unjust law, um, or am I going to um, realize that there's a higher morality here, that I can't just um, throw somebody to the lions because they're praying to somebody else? Um, and, and I think for me, where this comes into play, you know, that same idea that Daniel could have hidden himself away in the closet, um, that we New Testament Christians living in the United States of America, we have a doubly, a double sense of freedom that I've got all the freedoms that are reserved to the individual in the U S constitution. And I've got all this freedom as a Christian. And so, you know, Daniel, if, if this were happening in modern day America, it would be like hashtag Christian freedom. I'm not going to pray out loud for the next 30 days. I'm just going to pray in my head for the next 30 days. I'm going to go in the closet for the next 30 days. I'll get ahead on all of my work so for the next 30 days so that when this month is over, then I can spend extra time praying. And isn't that a good thing? But rather than standing on his freedom, Daniel chooses to um, to toe the line on what his practice is, and that is his confession of faith. And I think this is, this is a, a major element when we talk about resistance, is that we set those two up against each other, that either I will exercise my freedom or I will exercise my confession. And really, they're supposed to be synchronized. And the freedom takes a back seat when it's time for a confession. Yeah, two things come to mind there is, uh, I talked about this last time with live not by lies and I'm getting closer to the end of it. And what I was listening to today was uh, the Roger, the author of the book is uh, interviewing people, priests and so forth that were in communist Russia. And they, they kept everything going with their underground churches. <laughs> there was a one guy that he referenced that he had been in the gulag for maybe like eight years or so. And then he got out and he was warned, do not preach about the government in any way. And he, he went and he preached anyhow. But it was because of pastors like that. And then the wives and the children keeping the message of Christ uh, going. And these pastors 
and priests that were thrown in prison, they don't have books. And anything that is smuggled in, like uh, like Bibles, they're memorizing these scriptures so they can share it with the other guys in the prison. Uh, and then, uh, you know, talking about Daniel praying publicly, uh, I watched I watched a news story the other day, and and you're not going to watch these kind of news stories in uh, the the mainstream media. You got to find this elsewhere. And this was a lady. She was videotaping uh, the police lady uh, in her yellow slicker because she was in England. And the lady was reading through all the things that this uh, first lady had done wrong because she was standing outside of an abortion clinic silently praying. And she was arrested or she was and at least fined for that. And that's no different than, again, 1984 of the thought police. And, mm -hmm. you know, we thought those things can't happen. Well, they are happening. And it's not just happening in communist Russia. It's happening in places like England, you know, Britain and Canada. And it'll come to the U.S. too. And, and yet we as Christians need to stand up even if it means praying silently and and then we're arrested fined for thought thought crimes mm -hmm. uh, the and next that's one a, that's an interesting oh, one actually i have a little bit more on uh, on daniel okay. 6 and daniel 3 here um when you talk about like thought crimes and the idea of a, of a hate crime um or the uk and their restrictions on on what can what is permissible speech and what is uh, prosecutable speech um, in social media and and we can we will all agree that it's not a not a good thing kind thing christian thing to say hateful things about any people group or any individual person um, to to lump all people together and then to say hateful things about them we can all agree that that's wrong but it it sets a curious precedent um, when the government adds on you know a hate crimes accusation um, because then what it eventually does is say that well crimes are all they're all equal except if your crime is spoken against a particular people group then that crime is less equal or more equal or more serious um, and it gets into the question of motivation uh, and it, but it separates that motivation from the external like premeditated action so take for instance um, the idea of first degree murder is premeditated and thought out and planned and carried out um, and that is the the most serious felony charge that we've got in our nation and it is very difficult to prove but you can prove it if you have enough you know sufficient evidence um, because you can prove premeditation planning ahead of time but then you bring that same standard to a another another law another broken law and say well but this was done for a hateful reason um, it gets into it gets into a gray area that cannot be really based on um, the actions like planning ahead of time but it's based on the attitude which is that this person harbored hate internally and then we need to demonstrate that somehow and at least to me that that sets a that makes it not so much the nation of laws but it it does raise some extra concerns and i mean i'm not a lawmaker obviously i i don't want that job <laughs> please um but at the same time then it, it is up to the government to decide what is hateful 
Is it hateful for uh, me to say that the two of you should not be living together or that the three of you should not be um, carrying on a relationship among the three of you? Um, if the government redefines that, which is where it was in Canada probably 15 to 20 years already, that that if you're preaching from the pulpit on you know any of these things like Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, um, then the RCMP might find you online, come track down, knock on your door and say, well, time out, but this is hateful content. You need to stick to scripture. Um, but then the other thing, the other major idea when we get to Daniel, um, praying openly instead of praying quietly. I think the, the major point of contact is something called a conscience clause. Uh, the conscience clause usually comes up when we're talking about um, abortion, for instance that if a physician does feels that it is against his or her conscience to carry out an abortion, then they don't have to. And all the conscience clause does is take the lid off resistance. Um, that was that was basically what Weimar German, or Germany in the 1930s under Adolf Hitler had done, that if you as a physician don't want to participate in the extermination of the less desirables, then you don't have to. That's your own personal beliefs and we won't compel you to exercise those beliefs in public in the exercise of your office. Um, but what it does is it takes the lid off resistance because then then there's no way to exercise civil disobedience to say this is a law that is wrong and the government just said well you don't have to um no that that's missing the point it's not that i have to or don't have to it's that the law itself is wrong and resistance in that to in submission to that higher law that law of love for neighbor demands that we vocalize this in some way vocalize resistance to the higher law or obedience to the higher law um, and submission to that higher law means resistance and and if the law is just changed to accommodate every person's fragile conscience because we don't feel like standing up in confession then the resistance just disappears takes the lid off the re off of the pressure cooker of resistance and it gives the um those who are morally evil um the government and those in authority perhaps um, it gives them a free check, uh, a blank check to, to just do whatever they want. Yeah, and I know we're talking a lot of application here, but, you know, that's that's how, what we're supposed to be doing with Scripture is applying it. So another one, when you're talking about hateful speech, I read this story and then heard it referenced in two other podcasts about this guy that is pretending that he's a woman, and this would be hateful speech what he's doing is he's going into restaurants, he sets up his phone on a tripod, and then he records himself ordering his food, getting his food and so forth. And then he goes and he confronts the waiter and later the manager because supposedly the waiter misgendered him because he called him sir. And he talks about how uh, it felt like a, a knife in his guts, you know, being misgendered. And, you know, you put the, you know, our, our culture has put that waiter and the manager in a difficult situation because that, that waiter has to apologize. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I'm sorry. And so forth. And the same with the manager. Well, for those of us that it's not going to affect, we need to be able to stand up and it, we might be labeled as hateful, but it's loving to resist 
this guy and everyone else and just make sure we, we tell them, hey, I can see your Adam's apple. You've got male pattern baldness. You're a dude. And tell him that and say, I am not particip participating in your lie. And yeah, we're going to be looked at as unloving, but it's actually very loving to be able to tell him the truth and then free up that waiter and the manager and others who are afraid of losing their jobs. So, but that's, and, and, but that's standing up for the truth, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Mordecai, Esther, and so forth. It's all about the truth. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's, that's an interesting one because um, misgendering, you're, you're, you're looking to score points on social media. That's basically it, or to bring a lawsuit, but it's, it's not yet, at least it isn't a legal definition. Um, and in which case, if the waiter were, you know, compelled by his or her uh, manager to apologize, that would be a, what, a Fifth Amendment, um, an admission of guilt. <laughs> anyway, um, but it, it gets into all sorts of, all sorts of ideas of how do we actually confess the truth in, in a loving way. Um, you know, we don't want, we don't want this waiter to lose his or her job or, you know, his or her job. Um, for the sake of for the sake of somebody else's confusion, um, but if that person is walking around in a dress that is culturally says woman and he is not a woman, um, there's a whole lot more going on than just somebody you know attracting attention for no for no reason, and um, and I think that person would need a lot more help than than the waiter is able to provide. Right. Uh, can we look All at right. some examples from the New Testament? And the one that I added that I hadn't thought of until I really started digging into this would be the Magi, the wise men. That here they had gone, uh, you know, you would think, you know, he, he would go to Jerusalem, look for the king, King Herod. Well, he must have a son, someone that was born in the palace so because they've come to worship the king of the Jews. And then... It's not King Herod. So, but Herod says, hey, when you go and find the king of the Jews, come back and tell me so I may go and worship him. But an angel appears to them in a vision and in a dream and says uh, to not go back. Uh, they went, uh, you know, since they have been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. So were they then resisting the government. Now, it wasn't their government, but it was still a government that had been established by God. Mm -hmm. And, and a, the principle that we generally work under is that you are subject to the laws of the land in which you are currently in transit, even if you're walking through. And to that degree, the um, you know King Herod did have jurisdiction over them, even though they were foreigners just there on a temporary tourist visa. Um, and that, yeah, that would be resistance where they, you know, God warned them, God told them, do not go back to him because that man has ungodly intentions in his heart. He wants to kill this Jesus and that will, that God chose to exercise their resistance. God could have just had Joseph wake up that night right after the Magi leave and the Magi are on their way back to Jerusalem and Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are already on the road out of town down to Egypt. But why is it that God had the Magi go back to their country by another route instead of going back to Herod? Well, buy him some time, maybe, um, but also to 
preserve for us that example of a resistance in the New Testament as part of God's plan of salvation. And the next examples I had, I, I referenced also in my sermon from Daniel chapter 1, when the theme was uh, godly government. And there I talked about how Jesus perfectly obeyed his religious authorities, his governing authorities, but then he also perfectly resisted those same authorities when they tried taking power away from God, power that only belonged to him. Uh, he would not give to Caesar the things that did not belong to Caesar. For example, when Jesus Jesus was arrested and he allowed himself to be arrested by the religious leaders of the Jews. He allowed himself to be taken before Governor Pilate to then be taken over to the Roman soldiers and be scourged, even allowed himself to be crucified. And yet he resisted when he was in front of those same chief priests and rulers of the, the Jewish people. And when they asked him, you know, tell us who you are, he wouldn't say anything until they uh, started asking him about, are you the Christ? Well, then he, he had to answer. Now he's before Governor Pilate. Pilate asked them the same thing. Don't you realize that I have power over you? <laughs> and Jesus says, you don't have any power except that which is given to you. But Pilate is amazed, surprised, it says in Scripture, that Jesus doesn't speak up in his defense, even though Pilate wants him to, demands him to. And then Pilate wants to gain favor with King Herod, so he sends Jesus over to Herod. Herod wants him to perform some miracles like a circus clown. Jesus doesn't do anything. He disappoints the king. And those are examples then of perfect resistance. And that Jesus... Um... He was subject to three different layers of government there. You've got the Sanhedrin, you've got the local ruler, King Herod, as well as the, the governor, um, Pontius Pilate. And there's two things there that his, his resistance is part of his confession that, you know, just as Satan says, you know, turn these stones into bread. And, um, and Herod says, oh, just do a trick for me. Um, same, same thing. It's somebody else trying to dictate to the Son of God how he ought to use his power. Um, so it's, it's resistance, it's confession, but it's also, as Peter highlights, especially in 1 Peter, um, that it's also a willingness to bear the cross and a willingness to um, follow through with that confession, even to the painful result of um, those who would reject that confession. And then we get into the Acts of the Apostles, and there are a number of examples of resistance here. One is... Peter and John were arrested for, quote, proclaiming the resurrection from the dead in connection with Jesus. After they were released, Peter and John were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But then Peter and John answered them, decide whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they're willing to go to jail. Uh, to keep on preaching this message of the new Christian church. Then later on, they're arrested again because they continually disobey the governing authorities, the religious authorities especially here, and they keep on preaching Jesus. And then they're Do you think accused... that this one would, um, would qualify as like straightforward rebellion against the authorities where they have been commanded not to preach? Um, 
and and it wasn't even just well keep it to yourselves in your own private gathering but they said don't preach and the disciples are like well we have to preach and so we are going to preach <laughs> yeah i don't know i i guess the way you and i defined the rebellion before was it was active rebellion we talked about you you brought it up it was more your resistance is passive and and i think of rebellion and revolt as taking up arms, I guess. That's the way mm -hmm. I define it in my head is you're trying to overthrow the governing authorities. They're just uh, actively, that is an active uh, resistance and they're just going out there to, to preach. And then they, they tell the religious authorities, we must obey God rather than men. So they're putting God's first table of the law, love for God above the second table of the law, of obeying governing authorities. So anything that you want to bring up with, with that? No. Okay. And then there I reference how when those earthly authorities, when they, uh, here they're the religious authorities, but they were working in concert, I'm sure, with the governing authorities, with the Romans, and those, and, and when they are opposing the Christian church, God's heavenly kingdom, then they are obviously the the beast out of the sea. And then they're working together at, with the religious leaders of the Jews, the beast out of the earth. And they're coming together against to wage war against God's saints. And then we follow the words of the apostles here. We must disobey. Another example uh, from Acts is uh, Paul and Silas, they're thrown in prison. And then why? Because they're preaching Jesus and they're disrupting everyone uh, in Philippi. And then later on, uh, when Paul was in custody, Governor Festus wanted to transfer Paul to Jerusalem for trial. But Paul get, gets word that his enemies among the Jews, they're laying in wait to uh, to capture Paul, uh, kill him, probably stone him to death if uh, are on the road to Jerusalem. And so Paul says, I'm not going to Jerusalem, Festus. Take me to Caesar. And there would be an example of resistance in that Festus wants him to go to Jerusalem. He says, no, I'm going to use a, well, here it would not be a lower magistrate. He appeals yeah. to the higher magistrate of Caesar, but he is resisting Festus. Yeah, and that there, there is a time and a place to, um, to know your civics well enough to be able to um, appeal to them and use the rights that are yours as a citizen. Um, in order to you know spread the to support your confession um or even in this case where paul knows that if he goes to jerusalem he's not going to come out of there alive um that there is just the the basic moral understanding of of law and uh, applying that in in even in, in the secular world that the christian isn't um, all of a sudden leaving those things untouched but that those because the government has been instituted by God, that those tools are also available for the Christian to use um, when and where they find need of them. Yeah. And then uh, I, I included Naboth 
And the reason I included Naboth with, with his vineyard is that, again, we're often told, well, you have to submit to the governing authorities, you, which when people quote it that way, they're often saying you have to obey. Just do what they tell you unless they tell you to sin against God. And then I bring up Naboth. Naboth was not, uh, you know, King Ahab was not sinning in any way, asking Naboth for his vineyard. He even wants to give him a different vineyard, uh, pay him more than the the price for his acres, uh, to give him a better vineyard. He just wanted the one that's close by to, to the palace. And Naboth says, no. But, and there was nothing sinful from Ahab's viewpoint, nothing that, uh, you know, Naboth just doesn't want to do it. He does not submit. And sometimes resistance is just saying no. And then we talked before about Daniel. Uh, that was my sermon that he, uh, on Godly government, that he refuses to eat the food that was on the king's table and rather eat vegetables. And then I, I think another one with, with Jesus is with the first miracle. When he's at the wedding at Cana and his mom comes to him and says, uh, you know, can you do something for this couple? And then Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My time has not yet come. Those are kind of cryptic words. But what Jesus is saying is, mom, I respect you. I'm going to listen to you according to the fourth commandment because you're my earthly parent. But... You're trying to direct me to do something where my time has not yet come to demonstrate that I am the Messiah. And I will, I will respect you as far as your role as my earthly mom. But when it comes to my role as the Christ, as the Messiah, then I have to disobey you respectfully because you don't have any authority over me where God's kingdom comes. So anything on that one, Peter? Yeah, and I think that, yeah, that's that one is an interesting one because even there when we're talking about the um, the priority of submission, um, that we see Jesus resisting Pilate, Herod, and the Sanhedrin, but he also even resists his mother when he is, he is a grown man, obviously, um, but he also is, has a, a higher purpose and a higher calling. Um, and so there is a place where Jesus is completely subservient and completely obeying the fourth commandment, even when he says no to his mother, because his mother was in effect um, telling him to do something that was ungodly. Not that the action in and of itself was sinful, um, but it was out of line from you know, the will of God according to his earthly ministry. And, um, and that, <laughs> I suppose that, that content, context of being ungodly um, would be where you know, children resisting their parents would be an ungodly thing, a godly thing as well, if the God's word and will. All right, and then we we got through more than a page and a half this time, Peter. Uh, so we're going to leave it oh, right awesome. there with, yeah, uh, we're going to pick it up uh, next episode, looking at examples of resistance in secular history. Uh, but I wanted to to share a quote, uh, a comment that was on our YouTube page for resisting the dragon's beast, and there are a couple of comments. Uh, cool, one was fire. Uh, and so forth. But 
uh, and so I encourage all of you to, to to watch the videos, comment on them, share them, and so forth, as well as the uh, the podcast and so forth, and then to leave comments. So this is this is one of pretty powerful comment. Uh, after listening to slash watching all videos in this series up to the most recent 10, 27, 23, I have to say this episode gets the nub of the primary issues which concern me. I'm going to listen again and take notes. So yeah, listen to all of these things a couple of times. Uh, excellent work, gentlemen. Would, would that other pastors and the laity were blessed with ears open to hear your timely, relevant, and important contribution to answering the questions which too many are too timid to bother with? Ah, yes, the disease which runs rampant in our technological age, where eyes and ears are glued to the latest news or to the most recent horrific event. Thank you, and God bless your efforts to bring both comfort and guidance to a people habituated to fear porn. So we thank you for that that great comment, and we look forward to more comments. And then we'll we'll see you all with the next episode as we look at secular examples of resistance. <laughs>